Hello, namaste, and welcome to this discussion on AI and the future of power. Today's discussion is related to this book by Mr. Rajiv Malhotra, which is titled Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Power, Five Battlegrounds. As we all know, if the industrial revolution changed the 18th and the 19th century, 21st century belongs to artificial intelligence. And we are already seeing signs of this. These days, most news and debates across platforms are about technology, AI, data ownership, and how they are impacting our society and power equations. How the world and India specifically uses AI and other technologies will decide who will emerge the winner of this century. Indeed, this very important book by Sri Rajiv couldn't have come at a better time. It gives me a great pleasure today to moderate the discussion on this very important subject with the author, Mr. Rajiv, and an esteemed panel. I'm Alpesh Patel. I'm founder of an AI venture. I'm an author and a researcher on Indian history and culture. Thank you, Mr. Rajiv, for giving me this opportunity. We all know Thank Mr. You. Rajiv, who is a very well-known public figure. He has huge corporate experience. He has researched on history, culture, and civilizations for many years. And he's a best-selling author of many books. Interestingly, in the 70s, Mr. Rajiv was trained as a physicist and then as a computer scientist specializing in artificial intelligence. There couldn't have been a better expert to write this book. Thank you, Mr. Rajiv, for giving us this fabulous book. Thank uh, you for today's discussion, Mr. Rajiv is joined by some eminent personalities. So let me now introduce them. Firstly, Mr. Konrad Elst is an orientalist from Brussels. He's an author of over 30 books in Dutch and English. He's written mostly about comparative worldviews and about ancient and contemporary Indian history. Uh, welcome, Mr. Konrad. Uh, next, we have Mr. Abhijit Chavda, who is a theoretical physicist, writer, and an IT professional who has studied world history, geopolitics, culture, and impact of technology on civilization. So with that, thank you, gentlemen, and welcome. I'm very excited to have this conversation with you on this very interesting subject. With that, now let me request Mr. Rajiv to give his opening remarks. Mr. Rajiv. So thank you, all of you. Thank you, Alpesh. Thank you, uh, Abhijit. Thank you, Konrad. Uh, this is my first uh, uh, meeting with, uh, uh, with uh, Abhijit. I'm delighted to meet a, a kindred spirit, ex-physicist, a spiritualist and uh, interested in Indian history. So those are common grounds. Uh, I, I have had the pleasure of uh, interacting with Alpesh before. In fact, I launched his book uh, uh, and uh, uh, very delighted that he's uh, decided to discuss my book now. And Conrad, of course, and I go back a long time. We've had many, many great conversations. I've been researching this book for five years. The subject matter is deep and vast. It's not a matter of jugar that you pick up the latest news and start responding with some quick uh, quote or do a quick uh, video. Uh, uh, I decided to keep it confidential because I felt that too many people will do a quick knockout. They'll do a, some kind of a video interview or a YouTube and try to sort of get ahead. And then that way it'll dilute the value and the impact of my book. The book has made many predictions. I would say 10% or 20% of the things of the predictions have already come out true. Another 80%, I think, will come out true. They are, they are future events that are, that are not uh, yet happening. Uh, about India, its economy, about world politics, about the, the nature of the self, uh, the nature of geopolitics, the rise of China. I'm making all these predictions for the decade 2020 to 2030. 
and this book is pretty daring and pretty bold and pretty uh, open about making the statements on what I think is the likely course of action uh, uh, because of AI. And I've organized these, uh, the impact of AI on society. It's not a book on technology. I'm not going to teach you how to write Python or any of that stuff. I'm not, I, I'm not interested in, the, uh, in how you do AI. I'm interested in what's the impact on society. And the impact on society I've organized into five battlegrounds. Uh, these battlegrounds are, the first is on the economy, job, uh, you know, unemployment, these kind of things. And of course, great new things that the technology will do, uh, great new jobs and new economy also. So there's a, there's a tussle between old economy, new economy, will it create more jobs? Who will win? Who will lose? Will India be ahead behind? That's one battleground. The second is geopolitics, uh, military, uh, national defense, security, uh, the rise of China with AI is, as its main weapon. A third is this whole business of uh, psychology, psychological mapping of uh, people, their behavior and predicting the behavior and then, and then uh, outsmarting the behavior, using the behavior, manipulating it to sell merchandise, sell holidays, sell movies, uh, sell experiences, uh, uh, all this with uh, augmented reality coming, with variables coming, more and more technology that kind of usurps your agency and your sense of being in control of what you are choosing. Many people have even said that uh, maybe knowledge is obsolete. Young people, uh, we can ask Wikipedia, we can ask Siri, we can ask Google, they'll tell us what we need to know. And I've, I've uh, called this uh, syndrome, the Google Devta, the uh, Twitter Devta, the Facebook Devta syndrome, and the effect on human beings dumbing down as machines get smarter and humans get dumber, I've called it the moronization, moronization of the masses. Uh, the more moron you get, the better it is for the uh, companies that can hack your psychology, make you do things the way they want and sell that to their clients. And selling it to the clients is not just corporate clients with brands commercially, but also ideological brands, uh, political elections, make you vote this way, that way, uh, make people fight each other, uh, you know, conversion, uh, evangelism. There is a whole group in the US that I've penetrated, some, uh, managed to, uh, with seminaries and think tanks, talking about the AI and the future of Christianity, the future of missionaries, the future of evangelism. The, the left wing, the global left is really into this in a big way. Uh, the Islamists are into it in a big way, but the people of India, other than the few AI experts who are doing it for, for in the battleground one, which is commercial. Other than that, the rest of uh, Indians haven't really caught on to this in, in, in a substantial way. Battleground four is spirituality. This is a huge topic. And, and uh, uh, I, I've begun to find traction with some spiritual leaders, some gurus who want to talk about it. Uh, but previously for these three, four years, I found that they were not interested. They just didn't want to have anything to do with it. And then of course, battleground five is the battle for India. What happens to India as an overpopulated country, undereducated, underemployed, a lot of unemployment, a lot of marginal employment, uh, and just so much arrogance and so much uh, overconfidence in us becoming, you know, super, uh, this uh, Vishwa guru and uh, superpower and all that, uh, while the reality is not quite the same. And, and, uh, and difficult to criticize people, difficult in, even with good, in good faith, difficult to, uh, you know, give honest feedback. Uh, so what will happen to India in, in, in all this? And India seems to have sold out its future uh, to the digital giants. Uh, the, 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 I, I was very critical when uh, Facebook and Google invested in Geo. I called it a sellout. And in my book, there's a large amount of coverage on the sale of India and the recolonization of India. And, and I, sent, I sent some private emails giving my critique. In fact, uh, a, a chapter uh, in advance 
to prominent economists in India, prominent thought leaders, policymakers, and they all dismissed it. And they all supported publicly that this is a great thing for India. It shows that we must be very good that Google wants to come and buy us out. Uh, it's like it's like a prostitute saying, "I'm I'm actually very proud. I'm getting the highest value. You see, I'm I'm for sale, and the people buy, buying me out with so much money must be I must be very good." It's a very it's a it's an inferiority complex that uh, you feel that uh, because they came and offered you a large price, it's a matter of pride, not realizing that what they are buying is your soul. You've sold yourself out. So I will. I have a lot to talk about, and I'm glad this panel is here to uh, quiz me, grill me, interview me, uh, agree, disagree, uh, you know, whatever they want to do, I'm ready. So with that, I'll turn over to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opening remarks. Uh, what we've done is I've, I had the opportunity to read the book and I've identified some very interesting subjects uh, and topics from the book, which I would request the panel to discuss. So let me start with the first one, which is an interesting term called data capitalism. Uh, we all know that at the heart of AI is data. More the data, better the AI, and hence better the valuations of these AI companies. Now, Mr. Rajiv's book calls this data capitalism. Let me quote from his book. Uh, he says, digital capital consists of mechanisms that capture and monetize the data. And this is the very heart of the new digital economy. The vast quantity of user data the platform companies gobble up every second is the chief source of these companies' power and wealth. Individuals and organizations hand over massive amounts of data. All this data is machine readable and can be mined, curated, organized, and monetized. So is data capitalism a good trend or is it a dangerous new wave? Uh, uh, it's, a, it's a topic open for discussion to the panel. We can start with Mr. Abhijit. What is your view, Abhijit? Thank you, Alpesh. Uh, so at the outset, a very warm namaste to all my distinguished co-panelists. It's a real honor to be all of, with all of you today. And I would like to congratulate Rajivji on writing this very important and timely book. I hope that it will spark off a much needed discussion on this matter in India and hopefully catalyze a much needed uh, reorientation in the country. So thank you, sir, for your leadership. So you know what they say? They say that when the service is free, you are the product. And by you, it means your data. So what every social media company does and what every app does is that it captures your data. Some of it is captured with your consent and some of it is captured without your consent. So they capture all kinds of information, your likes, your dislikes, your friends, your followers, your entire social and family network, your interactions, your GPS data, your weight, your heart rate, your blood pressure over, over a period of time. If you're a woman, they will. They even there are apps that capture your menstrual periods and all that. They capture what restaurants you order from, what what time you order, how frequently you order. They know about your shopping trends, your shopping tastes. They can read your emails. They can access your finances, your internet history, your search history. They will know if you're having an affair with somebody, if you have a mistress, mistress stashed out somewhere. They know what dodgy websites you are visiting. They know your deepest, darkest secrets. And they create a very accurate and very detailed psychological profile using all of this information, all this data, all this metadata for every individual. And they actually know you better than you know yourself. They can predict your behavior. They can influence and even control your behavior. So we have heard about this uh, program called PRISM which was uh, leaked by Mr. Edward Snowden about a decade ago. So this was a program that synthesized data from a variety of disparate, apparently 
unrelated sources and it could uh, tell the tell the controllers the instantaneous real time mood of a nation of a city of a state of an ethnicity of a religious group it could in real time fine tune the mood of a country by trending uh, various things and today it must have been it must have advanced even more so you can influence social groups and countries and nations in real time by trending hashtags for example or spreading certain kinds of fake news etc so big data essentially has access to data that even governments do not have access to the database for india for example all this all this information it's a veritable gold mine because india is an enormous market and a very diverse market so the ability to own this data and to mine this data and to do algorithmic profiling and predictive analysis and analytics uh, this is what gives this big data companies so much power and influence and leverage it gives them more power than most governments and there there are a number of uh, factors that make these uh, big data companies so powerful the first thing is data and the second thing is these incredibly sophisticated and multilayered algorithms so these algorithms have been developed iteratively over the best part of the past two decades and that's what gives them so much power and that's uh, and the government that controls and regulates and owns these big data companies is the government that rules the world and as we know there are two governments of this kind the us and china so their power transcends national and international boundaries and that is the big problem that we are facing today fabulous i think i think it's it's when you read the book and when you discuss you realize how serious the issue is so you know i think he's done a very good job of basically summarizing what's in the book and what i've also been talking about for many many uh, uh, many episodes right now which are in the public domain but i think I, we would like to hear the answer to his question the answer to his question is not to sort of give an overall summary of the book because uh, but answer, his question is uh, is data capitalism good or bad i mean he's uh, so abhij abhijit uh, uh, he's, he's putting you on the spot <laughs> okay uh, i and i don't mind being put on the spot also to ask you your view on it so data capitalism is essentially data imperialism it is never good it is colonization it is digital colonization it is digital imperialism what it does is that it violates the sovereignty of a nation it transcends national uh, see this book is about is about artificial intelligence which is a technology technology is essentially nothing more than a tool it's a means to an end and technology gives the person or the entity that wields the technology power power is leverage and power does not recognize niceties like international and national boundaries it doesn't recognize sovereignty power sees a vacuum it will go and fill the vacuum so uh, this technology gives these big data companies the the power to interfere in your internal affairs in the country's internal affairs it violates sovereignty it can uh, it can influence elections it can influence uh, it can create unrest in a country so clearly this is a force for bad see if you look at the history of technology over the past 1000 years or so we can see that technology has been militarized technology has been weaponized and it has been used to concentrate wealth and power among the very few so it creates inequality and it has it is what has led to colonialism and there's a reason why people are so afraid of technology there's a good reason for it it's because technology is is used to oppress marginalize and and victimize and influence and control people and now this is happening because of ai this is this is poised to happen on a global scale because of ai so this is a very dangerous trend and this is something that india needs to be proactive about and take concrete measures to protect itself against thank you thank you 
May now request Mr. Conrad to please uh, tell yes. us his views on data capitalism. Right. Well, um, I'm I'm very uh, grateful for being invited. Uh, as Rajiv obviously knows, I am mostly working on subjects pertaining to the past. You see, comparative mythology, Indian history, and so on. And so this is a, a pretty healthy immersion into concerns about the future. However, <laughs> I must say that, you know, this data capitalism is really a very fast accelerating growth of something that already existed. Um, in his uh, very overrated book, Why I Am Not a Hindu, uh, Kancha Ilaya uh, gives a lot of stuff that, you know, he doesn't understand himself, but he does start with a very interesting description of, of commoners' lives in distant villages in India. And so he describes, you see, we are controlled by the Brahmin Banya combine, which he, of course, criminalizes. But nevertheless, he says, okay, the Brahmin is, uh, is radiating his own knowledge and he meets people in public. And he knows, for example, that Mrs. X and Mr. Y have married, and that's all he knows about them. However, the Banya in his little shop meets people privately, and that's when they gossip and they tell their secrets and so on. The, the, the Banya knows what is happening to these married people, how their marriage is going and so on. Okay, so that's already a start of data in a traditional society. Now, following the Banya into the modern age, you get the role of the banks. You see, I've always said, well, you know, you can keep your secrets from everyone, but the banks, if they look into their own records, they know very well, you know, what magazines you read, you know, who, who, you know what cleaning lady you have to pay and, and so on and so on. And so what is happening now is, is a, is a um, uh, exponential growth of this phenomenon. And so, personally, I don't think uh, when I hear say that it is it is evil, it is uh, imperialistic, and so on. I don't know. It is inevitable, and so we just have to deal with it. And it's not impossible to deal with it. I give you a, a very um, uh, actual, a very pertinent example. Uh, everybody has been shocked. Uh, by the fact that Twitter completely banned um, uh, Donald Trump and many of his followers. So whatever you think about Donald Trump, that's not at all the point. The fact that the supposedly most powerful man in the world can be silenced with one mouse click, you know, shows you who is really boss. And now many people have said, yeah, but you see, the, the, the laws against censorship, you know, for free speech should be used. And other people say, no, you see, it's a private company. They have a right to do this. You know, the laws against censorship bind governments, not private companies. And so personally, I am not too worried about this. You see, I think what Twitter has done is indeed an eye opener and is not a nice thing in itself. But then you know, the free market is already responding to that. People are migrating to Telegram, to MeWe, and alternatives. 
And so that's just the normal process in the free market of the one out competing the other, giving alternatives where another one goes wrong or fails. Uh, so no, I don't think this is evil, it's just there. And indeed, I think that uh, Raji's book greatly helps in charting our course uh, in between the dangers that this uh, system poses. Fantastic. Okay, so there will always be diverse views on the technology to say there'll be initial resistance, there'll be a few alarms, there'll be thought leaders like Mr. Rajiv who will alarm people and then you know force them to take a corrective action. Uh, let me go to the second very important topic I came across in the book. It compares the industry of revolution with the AI revolution, primarily from a job creation perspective. Uh, most reports today, if you read, they say that AI will create many more jobs than they will destroy. But Mr. Rajiv, uh, you say the exact opposite in your book. Let me quote from the book. Uh, During the industrial revolution, there was an immediate loss of jobs and suffering from wage reduction, but their future generations were better off. And we all know this, we have seen this. The question now being debated is, will the pattern repeat itself with the AI-driven automation or not? And, and, and you're writing that my position on this is that AI is different compared to the prior technological disruptions because the disruption is occurring now faster, more dramatically than the prior waves of automation because the pace of automation was slow in the previous revolutions. Displaced workers had the opportunity to retrain themselves and the education system had time to adjust and provide workers with latest skills. On the other hand, during this current AI revolution, many workers will be caught mid-career when they expect and need to work for many more years. In a way, they will be too young to retire, but too old to retrain easily. Now, that's a very alarming situation considering that we feel that India is a nation of skilled people, uh, educated people, and so on. Uh, so, so, uh, so, Mr. Rajiv, can you tell us why do you think this revolution is different from the prior industrial revolution? Thank you. So, as I, as you are, as the court already says, uh, the previous revolution was very slow over fifty years. So, a farmer, when farms got automated, a farmer had you know plenty of time to uh, migrate uh, his uh, his source of income. Uh, it was not happening overnight, so he could continue doing old old style farming. It was still viable for another 10, 20 years. He could live his life like that. And maybe his son's generation, his son's generation would not be a farmer. They would go to a factory in a town and get a factory job. So that the transition from uh, pre-industrial to industrial was intergenerational. It was not in the middle of somebody's life career that he has to shift. The current situation is such that when AI is adopted, the impact is very immediate. So the question is, will the corporates invest the money to reskill? And they have not committed to that. The amount of reskilling of uh, 400 million, 500 million, whatever the total labor force is, is a very huge budget. Is the government going to do it? Is the corporate sector going to do it? So I see social unrest. I also know that uh, not everybody can be skilled into AI. Not everybody can learn uh, these kind of things. Some uh, some of the people who are well-educated will become better educated and make even more money. The haves will become more rich and the have-nots will be left behind. I mean, I you know I see the staff in my mother's house. They come from villages. They come from Bihar. They come from uh, you know one comes from Bhutan. They come from different places. 
and I, I'm very close to them, how they are managing, sending money back home and supporting the villages and so on. These people are not going to go into AI economy. There's just no way. I mean, they're barely educated to function in a normal, in, in today's industrial level of, you know, level of education expected. India has a very large percentage of people who are uneducated. And then those who are defined as educated, a lot, lot of them are not functionally educated. They just know how to read and write their name. And therefore, they're called educated. People who are really uh, at a sufficient level uh, are very tiny percentage who could be AI, AI experts. So in absolute numbers, India may have several lakhs, several million people who will join this new AI economy. But as a percentage, it's tiny. And you have to look at the bottom 500 million people in social, demographic, economic terms. These people, what's going to happen to them? Who's going to look after them? And my concern is that the Breaking India forces will adopt them. The Breaking India forces will look after them. It's the missionaries, it's the left wing, it's the Maoists, it's the Islamists. They'll catch hold of these people who have been thrown out, who feel that they've been uh, abandoned and disowned by their own society. And this newly disempowered people uh, will become a social uh, issue. And that is my, my concern. It is not the fault of AI. Uh, it is not that we should not do AI. Of course, we should do AI. Otherwise, we lag behind China even more. Uh, but then we have to be concerned about this issue and we have to have a proactive strategy to manage this issue. Great. Mr. Conrad, would you like to throw some light on this? No, um, basically, I agree with that. I mean, I know that society is going to change and is already changing considerably. So that's, that's obvious. You know, we, we just now have to face... The, the problems that this poses, like, for example, um, many in Europe, at least, now are, are trying to sell the idea of uh, an automatic wage being given to everyone on the assumption that in the digital economy of the near future, very many people will be completely superfluous. And so no matter what campaigns or so you organize for better employment, um, many people are simply unemployable. Even if they are skilled and so on, we just don't need that many people anymore. So much is being automated. And so, you know, there is already some thinking going on about what the society of the future will look like. And so, I mean, I don't have to really uh, give any advice about this. You see, on this, society is moving forward. And so, Razi's book is part, a very prominent part, of this growing consciousness. Uh, Abhijit, what would be your views on this? So AI is a very different technology from anything we have encountered in the past. It's not just a force multiplier, it's, it's, it's exponentiating force. So the kind of technology it is, what it does is that it, it allows a very small handful of people to control entire industries, entire economies. And it renders the rest of the people, the vast majority of the population superfluous. For example, if you have a large industry such as, uh, take any industry, you can have 20 or 50 people and they can run in the entire industry over an entire nation. That's how powerful AI is. It automates everything. It has algorithms that make decisions on the fly in real time. And we don't even know what, what logic goes behind that. So it's entirely automated and you can have just a handful of people managing everything. So what happens to the rest of the people? That is the very big problem. So, so as of now, like, like Mr. Rajiv said, those people will become unemployed, unemployable. They'll become a very large 
burden on society that's what ai does it's going to uh, place a great amount of stress on society and this this problem can be used by forces that are that are inimical to a nation such as breaking india forces to foment problems to foment anarchy to foment riots unrest and uh, and various other other issues in the country so this is one of the big problems of ai it is going to reduce jobs like anything it's going to reduce it's going to knock out lots of jobs for example agriculture can be can be automated and uh, most farmers will become superfluous and similarly if you look at small retail shops mom and pop shops i mean they will all be taken over by walmart type industries so what happens to all these people who are earning a livelihood they suddenly are out of out of out of a job out of business so this is going to create a very big disruption in the way society is in the entire societal structure and this is the challenge that we are facing today so how do we continue society how do we continue civilization with this major disruptive force and that is the issue sure sure i think my personal view is uh, the industrial revolution versus the ai revolution is different in three ways uh, number one when we talk about the industrial revolution take automobile as an example right with the multiplying of automobiles there were actually more and more jobs because it gives more and more power to people to buy such automobiles so hence there is a multiplier of a demand there if you take a parallel in the ai there is no multiplier of demand there number one because it's actually more on the delivery side there on the consumption side second if you say in terms of the availability of skills an automobile creates a skill for the highest level as well as for a car mechanic but if you say ai there is no job for a car mechanic kind of a so to say a lower spectrum of the end of a person it's only for the data scientist and the high end people so so as mr rajiv has rightly mentioned it will create more elite high end educated people's job but it will not multiply for the lower end of the spectrum and indeed this will definitely disrupt the society in terms of how we allocate jobs how we work i mean when a person like mr gates says that ai should be taxed on the corporates definitely means that there is something to think about in terms of whether we can sustain the societies in a post ai era so definitely there is something to think about and it's a big disruption for the society uh, let me go now to the third and very interesting topic on inequalities and the social disruption now it is believed that development of new technology creates more job reduces poverty and more importantly improves the quality of lives of people uh, but in your book mr rajiv you state that the spread of ai will increase wealth inequality and leave more people poorer uh, to quote from your book you said automation will create a dichotomy between haves and have nots massive unemployment will occur simultaneously with shortages of professional in the latest technologies those who technically qualify possess the latest knowledge and can work competitively in the new economy will be rewarded with high paying jobs but those new skills will create those elites unfortunately most workers will be left behind to face unemployment or exist on meager living uh, and and you add that artificial intelligence will increase economic divisions by worsening the disparity that already exists in the society and you quote the global wealth report of 219 by credit suisse wealth institute indicating that the top 1% of the world's richest people own 45% of the world's wealth 
Now, indeed, that's alarming. Uh, so, Mr. Rajiv, would you like to say what role is AI potentially playing in this haves and have-nots kind of a scenario? Thank you. So, you know, I have uh, I've read a lot of economic reports from uh, World Economic Forum, McKinsey, Pricewaterhouse, Ernst & Young, uh, International Labor Organization, United Nations, many UN reports, uh, Oxford, uh, you know, economics, all kinds of reports. Uh, and, and I find that the positive ones are all top down, <laughs> written by the corporate people, uh, people like Fiki and CII and uh, all these corporate advisors and corporate consultants because they want to make get a fee from the company, uh, from the corporate sector to give them the reports that the corporate sector likes. And the corporate sector wants to look like it's doing a good job, it's creating jobs and so on. They don't want to have political problems right now. So the re reports you have to take with a grain of salt. The other reports which are written, written by International Labor Organization, World Bank, those are reports that you have to read also in order to understand the impact on the working class, the poorer class, the, the disempowered people. And you know, it's very appalling when you look at what percent of income the top 1% have, what percent of total income of a country goes to the top 1% and what percent of the total assets owned by in the country are owned by the top 1% and then, and then the top 10%. India is pretty bad. India's concentration of wealth is pretty bad. Uh, Russia is bad. There are some countries that are pretty bad. Uh, uh, most countries, with rare exceptions, you'll find that there is a pyramid with a few people owning a lot. But the most disturbing thing is that this trend is getting worse. The trend is getting worse. If you look at the, uh, the figures for today and you look at the figures for you know, 15, 20 years ago, the figures, there is more concentration of wealth today. So that's the statistical fact. Now, obviously, the data capitalism, like any capitalism, means that if I own the data, I own the algorithms, I own the infrastructure, then I'm going to make more money on it. And you don't. So you are, you are you know, hey, you are just a, one of the millions or billions of people in the database and you, you don't have any uh, proprietary knowledge, uh, proprietary rights. You don't own intellectual property. So most people uh, are not going to get the same kind of benefit as the ones at the top of the pyramid. I think there'll be many tiers. At the top will be the very big trillionaires. Right now you have people with more than 100 billion value. There, were, there was no, not even a person with 10 billion value several years ago. Uh, Rockefeller and one, one or two people became the first billionaire and it was considered a very big deal. Now you have people with more than 100, 100 billion. You will have trillionaires in the next uh, couple of decades. Within the next 10, 20 years, you'll have people who got net worth of trillion dollars. So now the, at the bottom of the pyramid, you'll have... 50% that are basically managing their and able to meet uh, to meet their expenses because of subsidies subsidies uh, you these people get free, you know in india you look at how many people get free housing free electricity they get some subsidized food they get food is subsidized because of the whole farm kind of thing uh, then education you know they don't pay market wages uh, even to go to jnu it's not a it's not a fair market uh, price of education like a private university would charge. So, so many things, medicines, so many things are subsidized. So this subsidy, uh, on top of that, India is a poor country. So a poor country is subsidizing for those who are the poorest among them. It's very difficult to continue sustaining that. Uh, then you look at uh, uh, India has to import weapons. Uh, India can't defend itself with uh, domestic weapons. That's another AI problem I've talked about. AI is worsening this. So to spend tens of millions of dollars for every Raphael jet. Each Raphael jet, tens of millions of dollars. Takes so many thousand man years of uh, labor export to make one jet, buy one jet. It's, a, it's very difficult. Uh, 
So, you know, this, uh, this uh, exploitation is inevitable. And I think we have to understand the nature of this. And I have some thoughts in this book, very clear thoughts, what has to happen. I have other books coming, two, volume two, volume three, four coming down the pipe very quickly, uh, where I'm giving more solutions. Uh, but denying the problem is not a good idea. This is, uh, 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 you know, those who are into denial mode, uh, that is very irresponsible, I would say. So uh, the billionaire types in Mumbai and various places, the few tycoons, I criticize them a lot in this book because they have not done, they have not shouldered the responsibility, social responsibility. It's a lot of lip service. And Indian society is looking up to them like they are some gods or something. But they have really not invested enough in nation building. They are too selfish, too much concentrating the wealth. Uh, and their, their, uh, their uh, business plans are optimizing personal success. Uh, uh, so there is this thing called, I call it the Sensex economy, where all these companies that trade on Sensex, their share price, uh, they're, they're luring investors to invest and get more return. Uh, so this is driving the behavior, you know, how to get more profits. This is not the optimizing the social good. It is not op optimizing the, the, the dharma index or something like that. It is not op optimizing the public welfare. It is optimizing selfishness. This is not in the Varna system what the Vaishya is supposed to do. Uh, and, the, and the Brahmin as the owner of intellectual capital, if you think of him as the R&D guy, the intellectual capital is not supposed to use that intellectual property to make tr trillions of dollars for himself. So you can you can look at it from a dharma, uh, 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 you know, our civilizational lens point of view and find many many things going wrong, in this imbalance being created, this overly concentration of wealth, the rich getting richer, and and you will find that uh, this is a path to catastrophe. Sure, Mr. Abhijit, you too believe that AI will be fueling this inequality. What is your view? Yes, definitely. AI will be fueling a lot of inequality in the future because it is going to concentrate wealth and power in a very small number of people. So essentially, it's the question of who is the beneficiary of AI? Who is the real stakeholder? And the stakeholders are the ones who own the platforms and own the intellectual property, the algorithms and the data and all that. So they are the ones who are going to benefit the most from it. And the other the rest of the world is essentially just the, the data producers. So it's going to create a very significant, very strong wealth and power asymmetry in the world. Now, when it comes to India, it's true that India's industrialists and all these people have not done anything to develop indigenous platforms and indigenous uh, intellectual property. And what India needs to do is India needs to find a way to unleash the latent, the immense latent uh, energy and intellect of the Indian people. So India needs to develop, India needs to create uh, the correct, the right environment for, for entrepreneurship and for having a start startup ecosystem. And there are many internal problems and inefficiencies in, within India that are preventing this from happening. So let's say that the existing billionaires in India have all benefited from the old corrupt crony capitalism ecosystem which served the the entrenched masters but what we can do is we can unleash a new ecosystem and a new uh, new environment to because because lots of indians have good ideas have excellent ideas look at silicon valley there's an environment over there which 
which enables people who have good ideas to 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 develop those ideas to work up on them to get capital and uh, turn that into billion dollar industries and that's what's been happening for for decades and that's how they've been able to build upon successes upon successes and create all these enormous industries so india lacks this particular thing and like i said there are a couple of significant internal problems and inefficiencies that are preventing india from going forward and i would say that india has about 10 years at most to catch up with the with the us and china and if it doesn't do that within that much time then it's essentially game over so india needs to find a way to set its house in order sure sure mr conrad you would like to have your views i won't go into the detail of the analysis of you see how this is going to work out nor in in what ideas other people will be inspired by this book to further develop so but it's very important that a close analysis is made of the social effects of this uh, digital revolution okay that let's let's shift gears and now come specifically to india we know we touched upon the india impact uh, of ai uh, but let's deep dive into that now uh, let me begin with asking the panel and mr rajiv has covered this in his book extensively through a detailed analysis is india's response to the ai revolution good enough uh, so mr rajiv in your book you suggest that india hasn't given due attention to ai that it deserves and to quote from your book india has recently started taking ai seriously but the response is weak and has come rather late china and the us have a head start of more than a decade the ramifications are serious further india's path towards ai is crippled by several factors first the budget for the development of ai is too tiny the main opportunity in ai that has been identified for indians is just to supply smart labor to foreign clients ai has many startups in india and funded by foreign companies only and many indian startups are just me to copycats offering little original intellectual property leadership so we're playing the game of offering our people for others to develop their intellectual property so uh, let me let me shift the gears a little bit and come to the india story specifically and india's response to the ai revolution right uh, mr rajiv in your book you suggest that india hasn't given due attention to ai that it deserves and to quote from your book you mentioned that india has recently started taking ai seriously but the response is rather weak and it has come rather too late on the other hand china and the us have a head start of more than a decade and the ramifications are going to be very serious further india's path forward is crippled by several factors and you mentioned that india's budget for ai development is very tiny the main opportunity in ai that has been identified for indians is just to supply labor and to the foreign clients uh, many ai startups in india are funded primarily by the foreign companies and many indian startups are just me to copycats offering little original intellectual property leadership so overall you suggest that our response is rather late too little too late and it's not good enough so would you like to uh, tell us more about it yeah you know uh, when you when you uh, ask uh, people who are making the plans for ai uh, and they're very defensive they they'll tell you that uh, uh, india has got all these great plans and it'll it'll upskill people and create opportunities but those opportunities are like what i call digital coolies it's digital coolie work it's not uh, leadership work it's not game changing paradigm changing work a few a few very smart people are entrepreneurs 
the ones that are still in India, a lot of them have gone overseas and working for foreign companies. The ones in India largely are working for Microsoft India, Google India, these kind of Facebook, these kind of uh, Western country companies working in India. They're building intellectual property for those guys. They're not building intellectual properties for India. And the very, very few that are Indian entrepreneurs in, into their own ventures, uh, you'll find that the venture capitalists are foreigners. The venture, foreign vent, venture capital is investing in them. They'll buy them out. And the exit plan of most Indian entrepreneurs who get into this uh, field is that they want to build a company up to a certain size and then sell out and make money and be happy. So uh, the, India itself is not uh, accumulating its intellectual property. It's not owning these patents. Uh, this is a very uh, serious problem for me. So, and, and India is uh, as a supplier of bodies as a supplier of labor, working on labor arbitrage, wage arbitrage, make some middlemen rich. You hire somebody for $10,000 a year and you sell him to the American client for $30,000 a year. You make a lot of money. You can become a billionaire uh, if you are if you do it on a large scale long enough. Even if you do on a small scale, you, do, you export 5, 10, 15 people. You can, make, you can become a millionaire in a few years. Lot of Indians have done that. This is just body, uh, it's kind of labor arbitrage. It's no different than uh, uh, somebody brings, uh, you know, 5,000 laborers from Bihar to Delhi, or maybe 500 even, or maybe 50, uh, and uh, gives them jobs in a construction site uh, as a contractor supplying labor. And he's got a very big markup. Look at how little he pays them and how much he charges the client. This is the uh, now AI su supplying AI labor is just another kind of uh, labor, uh, in, uh, you know, product. Labor is the product. This is not what intellectual property is like. We have to own our intellectual property. Uh, so I'm actually puncturing the worldview and the positions of uh, uh, economists in India, government planners, including the Niti Aayog. Uh, uh, the, a lot of the industrialists, uh, you know, who are making money in this, I, I'm saying that this is bad for India, bad for society, and they are they are taking the youth for a ride. They are not being straight and honest, telling the youth what the game is. And so, by the time you figure it out, it'll be too late. You're you're finished. Uh, so, I'm trying to uh, advise proactively what is coming, so that the people who are going to be impacted know about it, and they should have a seat at the table. They should be part of the discussions. Right now, they don't have a seat at the table. The people who are going to be impacted the most, the youth in terms of labor, a lot of the poor people, the farmers, the villagers, the bottom 500 of the pyramid, they don't have a seat at the table. This discussion in how, now think of it this way. When you have discussions on climate change, everybody in society is being invited. The media is educated. They, they talk about it. School people, school children know about it. NGOs know about it. But they, these people don't talk about AI. They don't talk about AI. This is this is a disgrace that uh, in the case of India, uh, the sheer knowledge, uh, the ignorance about this information is so huge on the part of people who claim to be thought leaders. Sure, sure. So, Mr. Abhijit, what do you think? We are doing too little, too less on the AI front as India? So, you know, in the 1950s and 1960s, the... Uh, Arabian Emirates, like Dubai and uh, Abu Dhabi and all these places, Oman, these were ramshackle little, little settlements, you know. And then there was this oil boom and suddenly there was this influx of Indian labor. So Indians went there and sold their labor for very cheap rates and they built up these vast, large, glittering, luxurious cities, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Oman and 
and all these Sharjah, etc. And today, what you have over there is enormous, beautiful cities, and the Indians. What and all of this was done by the Indians, but the Indians are not remembered at all. So what the Indians did was they went there, they supplied their labor at very cheap rates, and they built up all this property for the Arabs, and then the Arabs own it. So what did the Indians get out of it? Just a little bit of money, and that's it. So the same thing is happening all over again today. We have this labor arbitrage, like Mr. Rajiv said, and uh, and all that. So so Indians are providing. labor their intellectual labor they are creating platforms they are building platforms they are building intellectual property software algorithms and making the these foreign companies rich today when you go on the social media it is it is foreign territory you are living on foreign territory you exist in, in foreign territory and every the entire indian community is living on foreign territory so that's the situation that we are in right now and uh, india has clearly failed to to address this india has failed to see since 1947 india failed to build new institutions that were non colonial in nature and india failed to revive old indigenous institutions that were destroyed during colonialism and similarly in a in the in the very same way india has failed to develop new platforms and it it has failed to cater for the social media needs and big data needs of its citizens so this is the situation situation that we are in right now i do not blame the current government for that this is the best government we've ever had but the problems that it faces are immense so these need to be addressed and and uh, the other problem that we are facing is that our education system is so bad see india's education system is a relic of the 19th century colonial education system very little has changed only superficially or cosmetic changes have been done but the overall structure is the same so this is a system that produces clerks and bureaucrats it is not designed to produce thought leaders or disruptors or innovators so the mentality and the attitude that is prevalent among the people who come out of the education system is that of a digital coolie and nothing more so if they go into a software job if they go into the it field they are going to have a certain mindset and that is to work for the foreigners and make some money and live a good middle class life so these are things that need to be addressed these are structural problems within india and we have very little time to do it so i i hope that this is being addressed right now sure sure so let me just go to the next point which is actually a shade of what we are discussing right now uh, and that point is about a uh, very interestingly mr rajiv has put it uh, saying exporting manpower but at the same time importing technology it's a very interesting analysis uh, so so what we are saying here to quote from his book is the telecom and information technology revolution including the spread of the internet mobile telephones and social media has been largely pioneered by the western firms but it is fair to say that it's the indian engineers who played a significant role as employees and contractors working for the companies that own that intellectual property at the same time india has become one of the largest markets for importing this technology so we are exporting our people who are creating an ip somewhere and we are getting it back in the country uh, india software lead was similarly based on labor arbitrage with foreign clients which is inherently a rickety business model in the long run so uh, mr rajiv you can tell us in the ai scenario are we just repeating the same mistake or are we learning for it are you hopeful that you know we will one day start building our own intellectual property our own products our own capital backing the ai or do do you think we will continue this mistake so you know the fact that india did not build what ibm calls the watson that's their ai engine india could have built it 
and lot of engineers and uh, you know scientists uh, software people working in watson ibm are indians only <laughs> that's a proof uh, then they look at gpt3 you know india should be developing gpt4 gpt5 gptn some uh, you know we should be if i tell you if i were one third my age or half my age i would be doing nothing else but jumping way ahead leapfrogging ahead of the west and ahead of china creating next generation platforms you know not copying their today's platform i wouldn't copy today's platforms because they'll be obsolete by the time i've copied them uh, I, i would be copying the next generation one or two generations ahead i have a lot of ideas on that i've hinted a few but i'm writing more books on that so this uh, business of uh, uh, you know organizing your labor figuring out what does the client need he needs programmers who know this language that language so now the programming language has changed from x to y so we'll produce more programmers it's like the whole country's ai strategy is to be a pipeline uh, supplying to these people to the other people now in the book i've criticized a lot of individuals like for example uday kotak uday kotak i've quoted him one of the billionaires in india i've quoted him saying that it is his dream what a silly dream he says it is his dream that one day the villages in india i uh, will be the ones also trained to work for microsoft so i said what a bunch of now he wants the <laughs> villages to become digital coolies so this business of let's scale the digital coolie instead of only urban kids let's also bring it to the villages every all of all of india is like a digital coolie so this is uh, avi vishwa coolie avi is the vision to become a vishwa coolie or a, or a vishwa guru okay if you are a vishwa guru then the vishwa guru is not somebody who is selling his labor to some other fellow who uh, he thinks is the guru we we are not vishwa guru anywhere we are not even trying to be according we are talking about it because it feel good we are bragging before accomplishing it but what we are actually working on working towards is the vishwa kuli is the trajectory we are on so this uh, uh, it, it, i do a comparison with the chinese uh, doing wage arbitrage in manufacturing chinese did wage arbitrage but they took the profit from the manufacturing uh, uh, you know margins they had because they had cheap labor they could sell it at high price they took the profit and reinvested in futuristic things they were not greedy towards making money quickly they were willing to wait 10 years 15 years make big bets we didn't do that china bet on solar is now the leading uh, uh, in the uh, uh, country in the world for solar technology uh, they bet on robotics they have more robots than in any other country probably more than us and europe to put together uh, they 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 bet on quantum computing now they're catching up with semiconductors they're into avionics and aerospace they're into they're into the futurist things and we were happy that we are selling labor and we are making money and this guy look at nascom how silly they're just measuring uh, uh, you know bpo clerical job being automated by some guy sitting you know in india doing clerical job Uh, some uh, call center fellow all this automated when the call centers came i predicted and i wrote about it that this call center has a certain life cycle because of the uh, uh, voice response automation where you'll be able to do automatically and young people go online they book their own ticket online they're not looking for a live operator people who are around in the uh, below the age of 20 generally don't make phone calls to do banking or booking or buying something they go online and do it there's no operator needed there is no call center needed when you go directly online to somebody's website so the rise of the web and combined with the rise of the automated automatic response voice response systems meant that this call center is going out of business i would tell my friends who are in that business but they just want to milk it 
milk it for the last dollar that is this sort of short sightedness is a very serious problem sure sure mr konrad you have studied the indian history and you know that you know india was once a superpower in science maths technology all of it we were at the forefront of it and we were passing it on to the world in in a way if you like it be the nalandas or whatever and now we are at the bottom of it just providing the people the capital the ip is what is missing today what is your view is there a hope i mean what should india do there yeah there was a bit of a downward slope first uh, the um, the moguls then the british made it much worse in terms of economic impoverishment then the nehru indira regime made it even worse you see completely missed the chances that india had after independence uh, but now you see there indians are doing fairly well i would say um you see ever since this digital revolution started um indian culture has an advantage first of all uh it's not the people are not very book oriented not like jews or scandinavians and so now instead of reading a book you get it uh you get a, a youtube uh, video clip or something with a short explanation um you get lots of you know the, the puranic culture and so on is very visual you know this this medium really lends itself to it then it has and this is very important it has made possible the mushroom growth of all these uh, hindu minded media and uh, indians are making use of it quite well um like i don't see any important names among hindus being banned from twitter like uh, like trump has been because many people use all kinds of guerrilla techniques of outfoxing the algorithms and so on so you know admitting that it is still a foreign uh, technology but indians are using it to quite an extent to their own advantage however um in 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 your book rajiv you mention uh chris gopalakrishnan a co-founder of uh, infosys as one person who is on the same wavelength who is quite aware of uh, this situation and where it is going <clears throat> but um uh, you express uh, yourself and and to the extent that i know this this issue i also had the impression that the government is not on the same wavelength now i remember some 3 years ago at the time you see i was very busy with this problem that the government was not responding to very the need for very specific hindu interests like a reform of the constitution abolishing the anti hindu discriminations in temple management in education and so you know i was worried you know this government is not responding even when some of its uh, of its party members were uh, entering private bills in parliament in order to do something about it the government kept completely aloof now you said at the time to my pleasant surprise i have met some government ministers i've met the rss leadership and so on they're very intelligent well quite possibly but i still don't see them doing anything like for example you argued very convincingly uh, in favor of sanskrit 
as the national language, as the medium of instruction and so on. Well, now we have this um, new educational policy and, what it, and, and this is going to determine the course of the country in this field for a few decades. What we see there is a few crumbs thrown at the vernaculars, but essentially confirming the dominant position of English. And so I have the impression that, you know, good voices are just not being heard. It's also in other fields like Subramanian Swami devises a great economic policy and is frustrated that the government is not taking it anywhere. Um, so this is really a question to you. You know, is there really any progress on that front? Because I have the impression that Hindus are doing well. This book is certainly going to help uh, people like myself, you see, who weren't aware of this, to, to be attuned to this. And very many people, even in, in Sanskrit and so on, turn out upon closer looking to have engineering degrees and so on. So I'm very sure that many will pick up this inspiration, take it further. But nevertheless, you see, e even in spite of all this churning, not much is going to happen if the government doesn't cooperate or doesn't take the in initiative even. So where has this gone? Okay, that's a that's a good uh, good question. I'm glad we are asking amongst ourselves also a question. We should do that. Uh, so let me clarify. I the past issues where I felt that the government leaders are well, well connected uh, had to do with uh, uh, you know uh, Hinduism and Hindutva and breaking India forces and those kind of things versus AI where I feel it's a whole new level of knowledge which they don't have. So mm. I will, I, as far as the previous causes, all the work I've done, I think is now obsolete. I personally think my Breaking India book is, we are now, I'm now writing Breaking India 2.0 in light of artificial intelligence. All of my stuff, uh, all of this whole Hindutva crowd going and doing all these, uh, the people you named also who got all these discussions going on and all this activism going on and you are part of it also. I feel that they're all obsolete because this AI makes them obsolete. The AI, AI uh, mm -hmm. takes the Kurukshetra to a new level and these people are not prepared. And my book is to is going to be received in a, in a, in a different, in, with different uh, uh, attitudes from them. Uh, so uh, the problem in that topic and then the problem in the AI topic different. The problem in all those past topics mm -hmm. I think is my fence is not the BJP leadership or the RSS holding it back. It's the IAS people. It's the bureaucrats. It's the government, government civil servants, uh, because it's the civil service is exactly mm -hmm. like it was in the past. No reform has taken place. Uh, these guys are the way that selected in this UPSC exam, the kind of uh, training they have in Missouri. Uh, a kind of so facade of uh, patriotism and Indian culture, but deep down they've been raised in a very westernized, secularized, almost Hindu-phobic kind of uh, uh, attitude. I've given many talks at the uh, in uh, the IS Academy in Missouri, at the Foreign Service Institute in Delhi. Uh, so I know the, the 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 mentality that's out there. I would say that's that problem of civil service colonization has not been changed. Uh, by anybody so far. 
Now, AI is a new problem. AI is a problem where not only the civil service is obsolete, but the, I think the RSS people are obsolete, the uh, BJP people, the government people, none of them know anything about it. So now I want to ask you, Conrad, my question. This is the question I wanted to ask you. I've been waiting for a long time. You know the Hindutva leaders in the, in the public space. And they all want to stampede over each other, get more retweets, get more donations, get more likes. Uh, they're all into that. But none of them wrote this AI book. And I've been at it for five years. And in my private yeah. conversations with some of them, they poo-pooed the idea. So I said, okay, to hell with them. I'll just go write the book and let's see how the public demands. So first part of the question is, they're obsolete. Why they're obsolete? They didn't do research. Is it that they're tamasic people? They just want to uh, do get quick value, quick limelight, copy, copy, beg, borrow, steal ideas from somebody and just take it out. They've all been copying it. They've all been copying. I want you to comment on this. My thesis is they've all been copying the Breaking India thesis and the Breaking India Foundation and, and turning it into whether it is Naxals, whether it is urban, whether it is Maoist, whether this or that, evangelism. All those basic uh, principles and fabric uh, discussed in Breaking India, and they made 10 years of uh, career out of it for the last 10 years. Okay, so that is part one of my observation. I want your comment on it. Part two of my observation is now that I've brought out AI after five years of hard work, uh, you are going to see a stampede of people who will suddenly claim to be AI experts. Okay, everybody claim, claim to be the AI expert, dropping in these buzzwords. And pretty soon, the ones who are lacking ethics will not even refer to my book. They will plagiarize. They will not only, they will exclude me. They will have their panels without inviting me. They will have their monthans and literary festivals where I will be told I can't go. When in fact, they've taken my ideas and move forward. So in this book, I call it a crisis of character. I call it a, I say a society is doomed when it, it lacks that kind of character. It cannot even, it cannot even reward merit. It, it, what about building paramparas and sampradayas and lineages like in the past? Forget that. If somebody is innovative and somebody has done great work and put a lot of effort into it, stuck his neck out, fighting for it, putting all he got, tan man dhan into it. You don't even appreciate that. And you are basically interested in sidelining him so you can get ahead, stand on his shoulders, jump ahead and don't even worry about him. That kind of a, uh, society is doomed. Karmically also our tradition says that such a society doesn't deserve to be, well, doesn't deserve to succeed. So I want to know what your thoughts are. Part one, why these guys fail to do something of this kind. Uh, part two, do you think they will repeat what they did in the last 10 years with my work, which is to plagiarize, copy, move it forward as their own, become very famous and try to hide me, try to knock me down, try to criticize me, try to attack me as without recognizing that they actually got these ideas from me. So can you comment? Because I, I, I think you are very unique mm -hmm. in position. You are very uniquely positioned yeah. to, to be an honest uh, person in this regard. And please tell us. Right. Well, uh, quite a few outsiders um, say, uh, and, and here I have to beg your indulgence because it's not nice to say, but you see, they gave a modern version of what the first Western travelers to India also said. You see, they had these stereotypes, the violent Muslims, the indolent Buddhists, the perverse Chinese, and this way they also had the deceptive Indians. And so 
you know, quite a few outside businessmen, and I've heard it from Indians too, say, well, you see, this is the Indian way of uh, trying to get advantages quick and you see not contributing except just enough to get maximum profit. Well, um, you see that, 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 that stereotype has grown over time. Um, so one thing that used to be said is that Hindus have a terrible inferiority complex. Now that is getting remedied. I mean, th that I can, I can see for myself. You see the now upgrowing generation has a lot more self-confidence um, is still, as a fashion statement, imitating, you know, the West is Americanizing. At the same time, it is more confident in its own ability to build things, to create new things. Now, not much of that has come yet, partly because it lacks leadership. Um, and so there, a revolution is needed, particularly within the Hindu movement. You see, the Hindu movement that has come about represents not the whole of Hinduism, one very specific tendency that has grown completely oversized, that has captured the government and so on, and that originates in the 20s, in the, the high tide of nationalism, just after the First World War, uh, when you see every, uh, every society had uniforms, did marching with bands and so on. And so the RSS is very much like that. And part of that original culture is a strong aversion to intellectual work. You know, as RSS people say, ah, do you need any learning to love your mother? So, you know, why don't you serve your motherland with all this intellectual business? Uh, they also don't look at the feedback they get, you know, from the mentality of, uh, you know, the Boy Scout mentality of do well and don't look back. And, so that is still there. I mean, here I'm a little bit surprised that it takes so long to outgrow that. Um, like, for instance, I remember the days when RSS people were always on the march, always going somewhere because in the 20s, Het Gebar, their founder, had been in the revolutionary movement where to avoid discovery by the police, they never wrote papers to one another. They only communicated in person. And so that mentality has overstayed for decades. And so in that sense, you see, the Hindu movement is very slow, is far slower than Hindus in general. But they are the ones in power, not the Hindus who have more to offer. I mean, I do not have an immediate, I do not have an immediate remedy. I mean, I think I've diagnosed the problem. But now, I, it's first of all, Indians who will have to do it. You see, there I am powerless. I can only say what I, what I see. And uh, there I, I'm trying to, uh, to get people, you know, who, who can reach the government circles and so on, um, to point them to this, to make them more aware of this, because this leadership is going to make a whole lot of difference. There is a great potential among the new generations. I'm pleasantly surprised by this wherever I go, uh, but it's not going to go very far if it's not, as the RSS is want to say, if it's not organized. So, but uh, but Conrad, uh, this is all very good, and I agree with much of it, most of it, in fact. But my question is a little different. 
had Rajiv Malhotra been an RSS man and doing all this within the RSS, yeah. you can bet they would all be very loyal. They would all be, uh, you know, writing, reading his books and turning it into different languages and supporting him. Uh, but they are not because I'm not part of their organization. Therefore, they don't even mm-hmm. want to, they just want to take my knowledge, but dump me. Yes to his ideas, no yeah. to him. That's kind of a thing. And I find that uh, I find that in the uh, the gurus. If I were in a guru organization, let's forget RSS. If I were in a guru organization, the same thing would happen. I would be if I produced all this work. Uh, this would be something that all lot of shishyas would emerge, and they would be reading all this and writing it and prom- prom- promoting it. They would not try to sideline me. Okay, they would not sideline me if I were an RSS guy. They would not sideline me if I were a guru in a guru organization and the guru adopted me. If they would not sideline me if I were in the BJP or in any political organization, RSS in the Congress Party, or if I were in the Communist Party, doesn't matter which in any political organization. If I were in an institution, be it a grassroots. Uh, you know, RSS institution, be it a political institution, be it a guru institution. If I were in one of those institutions, then the work I've done would propagate much further in a more systematic way. There would be a school of thought. There would be a teacher training. Uh, then the teachers would be going and training other people. So it would not be a stampede of uh, irresponsible entrepreneurs, everybody claiming originality. Like in the past one week, some AI type people have spawned, spawned out of nowhere who, who were nowhere on the scene. And they haven't done this hard work. They don't know. They don't mm. even know much of it, but they'll just read my book and start turning it into their own. So my question to you is, is this, is this something about not knowing how to build institutions in general? Is it lack of ethics and plagiarism that uh, says, okay, uh, copy, copy, beg, borrow, steal, uh, because India, India doesn't uh, necessarily respect intellectual property? Uh, and, and, and is this a failure in the, uh, of some kind that India is paying the price for? Because in India, you know, fashion comes out, everybody, it's, there is no, uh, unless you're an icon, if you're an icon, if you are a famous person, mm-hmm. some movie star or some kind of, so either you have to be a celebrity or you have to be an RSS person, or you have to be joining one of, or leader in one of the many political parties, whichever one, or you have to be a spiritual guru. If you're one of these, then, then, you know, you get traction to build a movement where people will actually take your work and move it forward. Whereas in my case, having invested so much and done so much, Basically, I'm giving it away. It's like India doesn't have intellectual property because uh, the West takes it, but at least they give you fair wages. In my intellectual property, they take away without giving me anything. So, 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 what do you think of that? What do you think of what do you think of uh, you know me as a case study in the failure of the Hindu movement to to be able to organize around a thought leader? Who, who they know has helped them, who privately, they all come to me. Conrad, all these guys who are out there with their YouTube channels and their Twitter RT and millions of followers here and there, privately, when they meet me, they say, you know, thank you. You are the one who taught us. Without this, we didn't know. Now we are very clear. You explained your book was the Bible of all this, that kind of thing they tell me. Okay. And, and then they go in public. They want nothing to do with me. What is the reason for that? I think, I think this, will, this conversation will give us a clue into a major crisis of character. And I, and I will ask Abhijit also the same question, but I first want to hear your views. At the, at the thought level, um, one thing that may help is to impress upon people more of a view of the future. Yeah, that's like what the life coaches and so on say. 
you know, you have to be goal-oriented. You have to very vividly visualize what it is that you're going to, what it is that you want to achieve. And conversely, you have to also vividly visualize where you're going to end if you keep on doing something wrong. You know, I mean, if you, if you can't stop with drinking alcohol, well, visualize yourself in the gutter 10 years from now. So if that's not what you want, okay, then muster the courage to do something about it. So maybe that's something we haven't done enough yet, though, of course, your book precisely is future-oriented. Um, so we have to make that more of a thought habit to, to really picture that, to really make that present. No, but my, my, my complaint is that uh, yeah. we did not come, our thought leaders were considered thought leaders, the Hindu yeah. thought leaders. Yeah. Yeah. missed the boat on AI and I've been working on it for five years and rather than helping me whenever yeah. I went for help privately they would just kind of set it aside and keep milking the idea of milking wage arbitrage we criticized it wage arbitrage milking it for quick money and then milking the breaking India for quick uh, notoriety and quick fame yeah. rather than investing what just like we fail to invest in the next generation of uh, uh, AI techno AI software uh, also failing to invest in the next generation of thought leading thought leading thoughts what are the next generation frameworks so if there is if if they in a country like that in a society like that if you are not if you're ahead of the game if you are a thinker pioneer you'll migrate to America because you you don't you don't think that this country respects that so just like the country wouldn't respect futuristic thought, lead, thought leaders in technology and they got to go to America. What about, what about a cultural civilizational thought leader like me uh, feeling that this country cannot respect that either? Uh, and so why the hell do I want to stick around? Maybe I'll do this kind of pioneering work for the Chinese. They'll, maybe they'll hire me or maybe some uh, Christian group will hire me and I'll, I'll teach them about Christianity and AI, how they can become more futuristic. Uh, maybe I got better clients elsewhere. Maybe, I've, maybe I, I, maybe I uh, chased the wrong, maybe I uh, helped the wrong culture because maybe, maybe in my personal heart, because I'm a devout Hindu, therefore I've assumed that others, others are like that, but maybe they're not like that. And maybe, maybe the pursuit of uh, helping uh, civilization, uh, uh, which is hopeless in terms of its ethics, its moral values, its uh, ability to uh, support somebody on meritocracy, maybe that's a bad thing. So Abhijit, what is your thought on this? As an Indian, watching how Indians are, how do you feel about the lack of the caliber, lack of caliber? Take me as a case study. So it is indeed quite dispiriting to see how the things are. The question is, these people whom we call thought leaders, are they actually thought leaders? Do they produce any actual original ideas or do they just jump on trends? Yes. So, for example, for decades, we have had these, these experts on Pakistan and international relations. International relations in India means just Pakistan. Now, in the past year or so, you have had this mushrooming of China experts all of a sudden because India and China went to, went to blows. So it's a trend that they've jumped on. And now, like you said, I can expect that there's, there's going to be a mushrooming of AI experts in the country based upon your book. So this is, this is a failure of leadership. These people who call themselves thought leaders, the question is, whom do they serve? Leadership is service. You need to have a constituency whom you serve. So whom do these people really serve? Do they serve the people of India? Do they serve the Hindus or do they serve themselves? Do they really promote themselves? Is that what is their real objective? So that is the question that I would like to raise actually. Now, 
uh, I would say that monopolies are bad. And in India, there is a monopoly on leadership of Hindus. There's only one political stream that has mon- monopolized the leadership of the Hindu people. So I, I believe Hindus need options. And if you have options, then there'll be competition, healthy competition Very among good. them. Yes. So yes. That, that is what I think. Yeah. So, but Abhijit, continuing on, the, on, on this point, uh, the, the Jugaad, instead of, instead of research into AI, instead of research into breaking India, instead of research into being different, my things take years, decades, sometimes a decade uh, to produce one major book. And I have 20 more books I'm going to publish because I've, I've been researching them for a very long time and I need to f- publish them. I don't find people putting in that much effort. They are doing jugaad, copy, paste here and there, put some their name on it and change some words here and there and go to the market. That is lack of leadership, like you said. I agree. What about the followers who go chasing them? What about the lot of people come to me and say, oh, you know, so-and-so, I don't want to name people because then it gets nasty. Okay, so I won't name anybody. What about so-and-so? He's saying all these things. I tell him, he got it from here only. Okay, what about what about the people who ought to be supporting uh, a pioneer are supporting the copycat? Okay, so the the copycat, the pilfered version, the pirated version, doing better in the market than the original. You know, there was a time when you could buy all the Microsoft pirated in uh, uh, some uh, Nehru place for uh, hundred rupees. <laughs> this kind of there was a, that's what it was said commonly. So this business of uh, pirating, uh, pirating the know-how, pirating somebody's research. So you, while he's spending the money on R&D and he's putting so much effort all his life, he's spending on R&D. You take his work and spin it and spend your spend your time on promoting, promoting yourself. So you, you are more of a promoter of uh, creating your own brand using his intellectual property while he's creating new intellectual property. So if that is a game that is happening in a marketplace, it would, this game would succeed only if the public makes it succeed. Public could be more ethical. Public could be saying, Are bhaiya, you, you should acknowledge this guy. You go work with him. Help him out. He needs, he'll do, he'll, he'll do 5x more, 10x more work if you were to help him. Rather help him than to branch off and try to make your own. Uh, the public doesn't even have the sense. So if the leaders are like that, if the leaders are no good and the followers don't are, are just a bunch of random people looking for instant gratification, then you know what happens to a society in this book I've written. Please read it. In this book I've written, read it again carefully. Now that you guys have read the book, you can read it uh, more closely. In this book, I'm saying that such people are vulnerable to uh, being captured for their agency by the digital giants, by the AI systems, by the machine learning systems, because they do not have a grounding. They're not grounded in ethics. They're not grounded in dharma. They're too opportunistic. They have very low attention span. They're jumping here, there, whichever the latest, whoever, whoever has... If I have fewer views and somebody who copied my idea got more views, people will go to him. People go to him, even though he's basically got no originality. Okay. So, so I'm always being told that you need to do marketing and promotion. So this business of uh, uh, original research is not appreciated, but promotion, self-promotion is appreciated. Tells me something about the nature of people. And if, if we are so broken, if we are so broken in character, in our own dharma, because dharma doesn't say that. Dharma says, you know, in the old days, uh, if somebody criticized, somebody had a view uh, uh, concerning Vedanta, uh, 
they would quote Shankara, whether they are agreeing or disagreeing is a later. They would not promote that it is my own original idea. They would quote, they are required that you quote the, the Shastra. Then you give your view. You can have a different view. Next guy who comes afterwards will quote the original Shastra, your view, and then his view. This is how when you learn Vedant, you learn the whole history of thought of all the pe people, all the commentaries. All the commentaries are required part of your education. So if somebody want to today take on this breaking India force, they ought to start with, a, with where is an original book on this? And then who wrote something? Then who wrote something? Then who developed it further? Who took it in a different direction? That would be the, uh, the learning. But today's youth got no time for that. The people who are funding, donating, the people who are sponsoring, they also are no, have no... So Conrad, instead of asking me, to, you should go to so-and-so person X because he, will, he knows more. Such person X themselves are lost. They are also chasing the latest... They are chasing the latest fellow getting views. And therefore, the platform they are creating, the, the Manthans, the Litfest they are creating are all opportunistic, bringing in the latest celebrities who got the latest views last week. Now, this is a very short-sighted culture, Abhij Abhijit. Tell me, this is a very short-sighted group of people. We can't blame government for it. It is the character of the average person. You know, Rajivji, you speak about the moronization of the masses. Yes. So I would say that the moronization of the masses has been happening for over a century through our education system. Yes. The education system doesn't endow the students with the ability to discern right from wrong. Right. It doesn't give you the ability to think critically. Right. It simply turns you into sheeple, into sheep. Yes. And that's what's been happening for decades, for over a century. Yes. And that is, and and the other thing is that in 1947, a nation state was born and a civilization died. So India is no longer grounded in the dharmic culture. Indians are are, are confused. They are lost. They are rootless. And that is why there is a lack of ethics. There is the, there, and and then there is this Pavlovian conditioning that shortcuts will get you results, but hard work is going to give you give you basically misery. So this is the entire milieu that India is in right now. Very and correct. that is the reason why, why we are facing things like this. Yes. I think you've diagnosed it correctly. This is exactly the position in my book also. The moron, the moron people, uh, because, uh, you know, because of past, we lost our self-esteem. We became slaves. We were beaten up. So we turned into morons. Now we go after the limelight. So just like, just like uh, uh, going after yeah, Mughal Thabit, this Mughal guy is very big, or this British Angres guy is very big shot, or this political guy, this movie star is very big. Okay, so this uh, this cricketer is very big because we cannot judge for ourselves. If the if a celebrity holds a bottle of some milk or drink or or a product or shoes or whatever. He may not be an expert in this at all, but the average consumer thinks that they, I'll buy these, this product because this celebrity likes it. So if the celebrity likes it, I'll also buy it. This kind of a, a icon, icon pro, being prone to very icon and idol worship, okay, becoming a character is a very typical of morons. Morons become idol worshippers because they don't have the brains to figure out for themselves. So this idol worshipping, and moronization means that even a serious thought leader like me, I, unless I become an idol, unless I, to the extent I become popular, only to that extent people will support me. People are not able to support that the, the sense in this book is so profound, we ought to support it because the book has merit. It will be like, what do we think of Rajiv versus person X? And person X got more views, so I go with him. So this business of chasing social media, in Indians, Indians becoming more vulnerable to the to, to, to the digital giants is because the Indian public is crazy, hungry, 
you know, thirsty for joining a bandwagon, joining somebody's jalous, kisi ka jalous ho raha some parade going on, some pageantry going on, become part of that. This is the Indian, that is why India is failing as a nation. Yes, yes, no. No, so I was I was listening to the to the fabulous thoughts which are emerging from this discussion. Uh, Mr. Rajiv started the discussion saying, "I'm not going to discuss about a Python code or programming. It's about the Indian society, and AI is just a a metaphor as to what India is and what we need to do." And I was able to link all of that with these thoughts which are there. And if I if you were to allow me to summarize, uh, uh, taking AI as an example, what the country needs to do. to take on the challenges of china or imperialism or uh, challenging india or breaking india forces if i were to summarize that first is being ability to build institutions rather than just working as individuals for somebody x y z and praying up to the bigger uh, forces so one is being able to build institutions second is uh, you mentioned uh, not taking short term shortcuts and persevering playing a long inning so to say to build something big so that is a second lesson and again ai is only a metaphor here not just being coding for someone but building my own ip so so that is a second one third is being able to take bigger risks one of the reasons we don't have our own ai ip and products is because we are happy selling ourselves for a salary rather than playing the long inning and taking the risk putting our capital and so on so we always playing with somebody else's capital so that is a third thing being able to take those bigger risks uh fourth is the work ethics uh, which is consistently coming out in this discussion which is uh giving due uh to whoever has done a good job getting inspired with it reflecting upon it and trying to do better than that with that inspiration so i think it's fascinating that we started with ai but we layer by layer we went to the core of what is india uh, and and this applies beautifully not just to ai but to all the fields that we see around us be it uh, swachh bharat be it any of the good things that we want to de- do and see india as rising nation uh, it will apply to all of it and and uh, this applies this discussion applies to the society at large as to what we indian should be doing to the corporate world in terms of taking risks doing something new and to the workforce in general not chasing short term goals but you know trying to aspire to be big so i think i think we started off with ai but as we should have we ended up with tackling and discussing where we lack as a nation and applying those principles not just to ai but to country as a whole so indeed it's a very eye opening and a very uh, layered discussion which took us to the last layer of it so thank you so much uh, if you have any last words i'm happy to invite any of you to say that but i think that's it from my side you know we've ended up with uh, facing a few problems that of course i don't want to minimize but nevertheless as books go you see i think this is the kind of book that really opens new horizons i would like to ask one question to mr rajiv uh I said earlier that I believe India has about a decade or so to catch up with the rest of the world in AI development. What is your opinion? What do you think? How much? How long did India does have? Well, I've made it very clear in the book that uh, India probably by the and and you know if you you've been obviously listening to a lot of my uh, discussions that I've been having with various people, I I've said that by the middle of this decade, which is only four years away, cracks in India's sovereignty will become obvious. i'm not even waiting to the end of 2030 i i'm saying that cracks in india's sovereignty its ability to survive as a nation state b- because of some of these battlegrounds what they are going to do very in a very rapid way 
and I'm writing a sequel to this book to explain that. Uh, uh, so that these cracks will become very obvious. They'll be, people will become more and more people will begin to say that instead of this whole Vishwa Guru Banna stuff, let's let's really ask hard questions about our existence. Existential threats are coming, and and I do not see the current uh, thinking leadership, the current planning. Uh, whether it's from Niti Aayog, whether it is our spiritual gurus, whether it is all these uh, Hindutva uh, social media icons, whether it is uh, industry, I don't see that comprehensive framework and I don't see uh, the, uh, a good enough strategic vision uh, that would change course fast enough and we're running out of time. I don't want to be negative. So, you know, I say a lot of things in this book, but as... Kanrad has noticed, and Abhijit, you've noticed, and Alpesh, you've noticed. I fall short of then making it clear when it's terrible and bad news because I don't want people to be scared and not read it. And I want them to face it, understand it. But if those who are thoughtful will realize that there are some very naughty questions which we, our people, the people currently are not the ones who are in charge, whether it is social uh, face who are these icons or whether it is all these big, powerful people just don't have it in them to be able to sort it out because the, the forces at work are exceedingly powerful. And I'm not disclosing certain things in this book. I don't want to, but I have, you know, when I did my breaking India, I infiltrated a whole lot of uh, these next foreign excesses, which is what I wrote about. I've done the same. Now the BI 2.0. Now I'm, I'm trying to popularize Breaking India 2.0 as a as a hashtag uh, and uh, intellectual Kshatriya 2.0 is needed. You have to you can upgrade yourself to an intellectual Kshatriya 2.0 by reading this book. But there are but in order to have written this book, I infiltrated. I got into various uh, groups, various organizations that are that are now getting ready and creating the mischief creating the mischief that I'm calling BI 2.0. So BI 2.0 is not some fantasy that will happen in 10 years. It's happening. And there is funding, there are products, there are strategies, there are algorithms, uh, they are testing them out. Uh, and uh, and you will start seeing these happen very quickly. That's my prediction. Okay. I, I seriously hope, Rajivji, that uh, your thoughts do not actually scare the people and, you know, put them in a shell, but inspire them to come out and do something. Uh, also, you mentioned about a lot of books which are upcoming. So we look forward to those books and, you know, inspire into action. Uh, so thank you so much for these thoughts. Thank you for your time. I personally enjoyed listening to you and discussing with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you, all of you. It's been a pleasure thank to interact with you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you.